All right, if you open your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 2. Well, Pastor Rob's been going through the book of Titus uh, with you, and we've seen that Paul writes this letter to Titus, who's in Crete. He wants to try to set things in order uh, to the church. And so we saw that he was going to appoint elders or leadership within the church because you need leaders for a church to, to function properly. Uh, last week, Rob hit us pretty hard, didn't he? Those of you who were here, um, he spoke to older men, younger men, older women, younger women, uh, bond servants, or we would say employees and employers. And so pretty much everyone was hit. I know I was. And it was a, it was a tough word because it was very direct. And the idea, the ultimate idea is that our faith in Jesus should make a practical difference in our lives, right? So when you profess faith in the Lord, you become a Christian, even the world knows you should be different. Life should be different. Things should begin to change. And, uh, and, and Paul would contrast that in, in chapter 1, verse 16, with those who profess to know God, but in works they deny him. You know, it's, it's probably one of the worst things is for someone to say, hey, I'm a Christian, and then they live like everyone else. There's no change. And so people look at that and they say, well, what good is being a Christian then if there's no difference between you and me? And so Paul's telling them, look, life needs to be different. We need to obey God's word. And the sad part is uh, a lot of studies that they've done in the church through the years, when they see the church versus the world, a lot of times there's not a whole lot of difference. When you look at, say, divorce rates, uh, premarital sex, materialism, spending language, just general conduct, the church and the world, a lot of times there's no difference, and that creates an issue, doesn't it? it? It creates a problem. It's a problem for our witness, but it's also a problem for us personally. Because I don't know about you, I've met a lot of people who said, well, I, I prayed a prayer 20 years ago to receive Christ, and sometimes the first question I'll ask is, well, has that made a difference? Is there anything different in your life since you've made that decision to follow him? Have things changed? And if nothing has changed since making that decision, then we have a problem. And maybe we need to go deeper. And that's what the word of God wants to do, I believe, this morning. Um, and so we saw last week in verse 10, we're in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, Paul summarized his teaching by encouraging us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Isn't that beautiful? How we are supposed to wear our Christian, Christianity on our sleeves, so to speak. God wants us to be real, and he wants that to impact the way we live our lives. Our lives should be different. There should be change, and people who are in our world, our coworkers, our neighbors, our spouse, our friends, our children, they should be able to see us wearing Jesus, so to speak. In other words, someone should look at our life and say, I see this person is becoming more like him. And if they can't say that, then we have to look in our own heart. We have to look at ourselves and ask God to maybe reveal some things to us. Um, and so we are to all be like Christ in our outward action. Now, that's a tall order, isn't it? Have you ever looked at the Bible and you've read about Jesus and you've said, wow, <laughs> I have to be like him. And have you ever noticed how he responds to people and then maybe how I respond to people by nature? A little bit different. And I see his compassion and his love for people. You know, after one of the things that gets me in the Gospels, after he had found out that John the Baptist had died, he had been killed, he had, his head had been cut off, 
And it says Jesus went to be by himself, and then he saw a multitude of people, and he had compassion on them in the midst of his own suffering and his own grief. We see the Lord having compassion on people, and that's what the Lord wants from us. He wants us to be like Christ. And to be honest with you, Rob kind of set me up this week in a very good way because he gave you some hard truth last week. And he, he, it was almost like playing a game of volleyball. You know how someone sets someone up and then you go in for the serve? Well, I get to serve this week. I get the good stuff this week to really encourage you with. But he hit us pretty hard last week. So um, here's our question. If you were to go through chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and you were to figure out where you are in that text. Are you a young man, an old man, a young woman, an older woman, uh, an employee or an employer? And you look at that scripture and it gives certain commands for you as a Christian how life should look like. My question for you is, how can I live out such high expectations? Because those are pretty high expectations. I don't do those things by nature. I'm not, say, uh, temperate in all things. I'm not sound all the time in my faith. I'm definitely not always sound in my love for other people, right? And so if you look at that text as a mirror, how can I live out such high expectations? Because obedience is expected, but how? And Paul's going to answer that for us. So if you'll turn to your text, we're in Titus 2.11. Let's go ahead and read the main body of it together. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, I don't know if you paid attention while we were reading that, but that's all one sentence that we just read. That's a long sentence, isn't it? I know Carolyn likes to write. Uh, sentences are hard. I, I like short sentences because I don't have to think too much when I say something short. And in our society, we like those short, catchy slogans, right? Kind of, we live in a, text, uh, a tech society where we just, everything's abbreviated. And yet in our text here, we have uh, 11 through 14 as one sentence, not only in the English, but also in the Greek. And what we find when you look at a sentence, you always want to find the noun. What's the, the, what's the subject of this sentence? And we see the subject in the very beginning of verse 11, and that is grace. The grace of God. And so what we see is this. As Paul in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, gave us all these things we should be doing as Christians... He's going to show us in verse 11 that it's the grace of God that empowers the Christian to live a life of obedience, okay? Now, many teachers in Christianity, they will acknowledge that we're saved by grace through faith. I hope everyone here understands that, right? Jesus paid it all for us. He died on that cross for our sin. There's nothing we can do to earn his forgiveness. He paid the price, and it's a gift. He offers you salvation in Christ, but where it gets tricky is a lot of teachers are afraid to talk about grace when it comes to obedience. And they're afraid to say, well, the same way you receive Christ, you have to walk with him, and that's by grace through faith. And it's scary to talk about grace sometimes because we fear that if we overemphasize grace, maybe people will just live their life however they want to. 
And that's human thinking. We think that we're giving a license for sin. And so what we do sometimes is we see, we read verses one through 10 and we say, wow, I don't know how I'm gonna fulfill this truth. I don't know how I'm gonna live this out. So let me create a bunch of rules and regulations to help me become what I'm supposed to be. And maybe we make New Year's resolutions. Anyone ever make a New Year's resolution where you said, I'm gonna be different this year. I'm gonna exercise. I'm going to stop cursing. I'm going to treat my neighbor better. I'm going to be a better coworker. I'm going to be a better spouse. And so we read the scriptures. We see what we should be. We realize we're not. And so we come up with these solutions. I'm going to do this. And then we do well for a while, right? In this case, if you sign up for the gym, maybe you make it on January February, things start to get a little bit sketchy. You know, you start blaming the weather on why you can't go to the gym. And pretty soon by March, it's back to all the regulars in the gym. And so resolutions, promises, all those things that we do so often, we have a hard time keeping them, if we're honest, don't we? Because so often it depends on us. It depends on our own strength to to overcome our weaknesses. And here's what happens. When we begin to fail at keeping those promises, how, what goes on inside of us at that point? Now I start to, f- start to beat myself up in my head. Now I start to f- get down on myself and I get upset. Maybe I start to isolate. And so it, it takes its toll on us. And here's what we, we end up trying to work for grace rather than working from grace. See, we try to earn God's favor so often in our practical Christian life. Maybe not at salvation. Maybe not. We understand we're saved by grace, but when it comes to actually obeying the word, we're trying to do it in our own strength sometimes, and we fail. But what the scripture, what he's getting at here is it's the grace of God we need to work from, not for. Does that make sense? We work from his grace because of what he's done in our life. And so a true understanding of God's grace will bring a true and lasting change in our lives. And you know, grace, charis is the word in, in Greek. It's, it was a common word in biblical days. And, and, but but what, it was, what was different about it is you would show grace to people who were usually gracious to you, your friends, your family, those who love you. It's kind of easy to love those people back. And so you would show grace to the people in your life who you, who you get along with. But when Jesus came on the scene, and when we see the word used in the New Testament, God's grace is not to his friends, it's to his enemies. There's a big difference there, right? His grace was extended to people who hated him, who mocked him, who spit on him, right? Remember when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was one of the things he said. But there was something else he said. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And on that moment at the cross, Jesus was showing grace to the people who were brutally crucifying him. I don't know if I could do that in my own strength. Do you? In fact, I know I couldn't do that in my own strength. It would take every ounce of the Holy Spirit to empower me to do that in that moment. And so grace, God's grace, is given to us freely even when we were his enemies, even when we were sinners, the Bible says that's when Christ died for us. And so in, in my experience, it, there's a lot of people in the church, they have a head knowledge of grace. They, can, they understand it. They can define it as God's unmerited favor. But here's what we see in this verse. 
God's grace has to be revealed to us. It has to become personal. It can't just be something up here that you comprehend. And you say, oh yeah, I know what grace means. It means unmerited favor. But if that grace doesn't change your life, what good is it? His grace has to be revealed to our hearts. And that's what it says in verse 11. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And that word appear means to become visible. It has come to light. It has become clearly known. It's where we get the English word epiphany, right? If you have an epiphany, that means that something that you didn't previously know has been revealed to you. And so this grace that God wants to give us into our life, it's something that we had no clue about before, or maybe we just had a head understanding of it, and now he's revealing that to us. He's making it personal. He's making it real. And it, it, it also, the fact that it's appeared to all men, it doesn't mean that all men have received this revelation. What it means is it's available to all men. And so when Jesus died on the cross, his offer of grace is given to everyone, though only those who receive it actually get to benefit from it, right? And so rather than trying to do this on our own strength, we see here uh, Paul is telling Titus it's the grace of God that brings salvation, that it's appeared. Now, when it says the grace of God brings salvation, what's it referring to? Notice it says here that it has appeared, and that word means that it appeared in the past, but it continues to reveal itself in the present. And I believe what he's referring to here, again, is going back to the cross. That's where we can see God's grace or his unmerited favor. Because when he died on the cross for us, did we, did we deserve that? Did we as human beings deserve him to die in our place? No. What did we deserve? We, desire, we deserved to be up there on that cross, didn't we? See, it should have been Luke on that cross dying for Luke's sin. But he took my place. In my place, condemned he stood, right? And so when he died on the cross, he, it's pointing us constantly, revealing itself to us, this is God's grace. You deserve this. He showed you mercy, and now he wants to give us grace and make, make us his children. It's, it's great news. And so we see here the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, verse 12, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Notice who does the teaching in verse 12. Remember the noun Remember the subject of this passage? It's grace. You see, grace, God's grace, becomes our teacher, our discipliner. He, he disciplines us, if you will, if you were to personify grace. His grace teaches us in the present tense. In other words, the work of the cross impacts not just our future, but also our present. The work of the cross, guys, it's not just about going to heaven one day, as great as that is. And that is something that we look forward to. The work of the cross has a present day work in the Christian's life. And I remember like it was yesterday, Romans chapter 6. I know Pastor Rob's gone through Romans with you, some of you who've been here a while. Romans chapter 6 taught me grace for present day living. Because it showed me when Jesus died on that cross, who died with him? 
when he was buried, who was buried with him? And when he resurrected, who was resurrected with him? And what the Romans chapter 6 taught me was this. I died so that Christ could live in me. I died so that I could live a new life. I could be a new man. See, the best the world has to offer you is to take, I hate to use this analogy, but I use this all the time with the guys. If you have, let's say, a, a really crazy looking person and you put makeup on that person, what do you still have? <laughs> you have a crazy looking person with makeup now, right? See, that's the best the world has to offer is change your behavior. Maybe the world can say, change your way of thinking, and that'll change your behavior. But what God offers us is not changing our behavior. He offers us a new life. He offers us his life. And the, he offers us resurrected life, but here's the catch. You can't have resurrection unless you first have death. Death has to come first, and after death, there's resurrection. And so the work of the cross shows us that we can die to sin. All those things in chapter 2 that we looked at last week with Pastor Rob, the things we shouldn't be doing, sin, I've died to that. As a Christian, I don't have to do that any longer. You know, as ministering to people with addiction, this is the greatest news in the world. Because the world says you'll always be an addict. Always. Forever. But the gospel says you can die and experience new life in Christ. And that's grace. And that's what this grace that has appeared to us wants to teach us. Grace is our teacher. And it shows us that we can live from grace of God. Now it's going to teach us three things uh, we're going to see here. The first thing grace teaches us is the negative. Notice in verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Okay, Notice it doesn't say avoiding ungodliness and worldly lusts here. It uses a very strong word. It says denying. In other words, grace changes our hearts. It changes our affections. It changes the things that we gravitate to. Before Christ, I gravitated like a moth to the flame to everything that destroys, everything that's not good, everything that's unhealthy and unloving. My heart gravitated towards those things. But grace changes our hearts so that we can deny those former things of life. I don't want it anymore. Isn't that at the root of our issue? Like, we can want what, what's good for us. We can want what's best. We can want what God word, God's word says. But if our desires still want the opposite of that, where are we going to follow? Usually I find I follow my desires. I can know what's good, but my heart many times dictates what I do. And so this grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It changes the way I see the world and the passing pleasures that it offers me. And it's not just behavioral, it's transformational. Again, it goes to our hearts. Uh, the British pastor Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. And, you know, in studying this, it reminded me, when I was a new believer, um, I remember listening to a man who had been a Christian for about, about 60 years, I think he said. And it was at a funeral. And he said this, he said, The longer I walk with Christ, the less I sin, but the more I repent. 
The longer I walk with Christ, the less I sin and the more I repent. And you know, that stuck with me, even as a new believer. I didn't fully understand what he meant by that. But as I've walked with Christ now for a number of years, sin has decreased in my life. But I'm actually more aware of sin now than I ever have been in my life before because now he's showing me issues of my heart. See, as a new Christian, you have all these big things in life. Things, you know, relationships, unhealthy relationships. You've got some people come out of addiction. Some people come out of just whatever it is that we come out of. And there's big things we know that has to change right away. But as you walk with Christ a while, you come to realize, wait a minute, now it goes down to the motive. Why I do what I do. You know, I can bless someone, and in my heart, I could be cursing them. I think Robert alluded to that last week with employers and employees, right? You can give lip service to people, but God's after our hearts. He's to change us from the inside out. And so the first thing we saw, the negative, grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Second, now he's going to focus on the positive, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In other words, grace doesn't teach us just to avoid the bad. And I'm thankful for this. Have you ever tried to live just trying to avoid bad things, negative things, people, places, things, whatever it is, trying to avoid the negative, it's miserable. It's a horrible place to be when it's just avoiding bad. I know I shouldn't do this. Let me stay away from this. Let me stay away from this. Guess what? Pretty soon, if you're just trying to avoid the bad, you're going to get tired of avoiding it. And pretty soon, you're going to go back to the bad because it's all that you know. But here we see he also wants us to pursue good things. Life has a new meaning. Life has new purpose in Christ. He takes us away from those things that are negative, and he points us to things that are positive here. The first thing he tells us is to live soberly. And that speaks of being inward and towards ourselves. We have to be accountable to ourselves. You ever try to hold someone else accountable who's not accountable to themselves? It doesn't work too well. And so he wants us to live soberly, to have right judgment about ourselves and our situation. Secondly, he wants us to live righteously. And that refers to our outward relationships with other people. In other words, your Christian faith should change the way that you live with other people. Maybe you have unsaved loved ones who live with you. Guess what? They're watching you. Are you different? Have you changed? Do you show respect to those over you in authority now? Are you loving people who are maybe a little bit difficult to love? You know, sometimes we struggle to forgive people, don't we? You ever try to forgive someone and it's really hard? C.S. Lewis said, everyone loves to talk about forgiveness till you have someone to forgive. I'm summarizing. I know I'm loosely quoting him there. But forgiveness is a beautiful thing to talk about. We all know we should. But when the rubber meets the road and we have to forgive someone, not so easy. And sometimes when I come across someone who says, I just can't forgive them for what they've done, it's, it's, uh, it's unpardonable, it's unimaginable. You know, the issue's not with that person. Their issue's with God. Because here's the point. If you've had grace revealed to your heart, where you've experienced the grace of God, you realize, I have to extend this now to someone else. So when, if you struggle with unforgiveness, don't look at that person you're struggling to forgive. Look to your heavenly Father, who has forgiven you in Christ. And the more you comprehend his grace towards you, 
you'll be free to extend that to other people. If you can't forgive others, that means you haven't experienced his forgiveness in the way that's necessary. So again, it goes back to my issue with the Lord. And thirdly, not only does he want to transform our relationships to live righteously, he also wants us to live godly in this present age. And of course, that refers to being like Christ. Because isn't that what he's doing? I mean, isn't that the goal as a Christian, to be like Jesus? Isn't that where everything in our life is going towards him? And so this is what God wants to do. Now, the third thing we see here that grace teaches us in verse 13 is also positive, and that is looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace also points us to Jesus' return. Now, how is that? How does the grace of God teach us to long for Jesus' return? I believe it's this way. If you don't comprehend his grace, then Jesus' return becomes a very scary thing for you. Because we understand he's coming back to judge sin. He's coming back to judge this world. And so if you have a grace relationship with God, probably you're not looking forward to his return very much. (laughs) But if you experience his grace in your life, you realize he is gracious. In fact, he is the author of grace. He is good. He is pure. He's everything that our hearts really long for. Well, then his return will become precious to you. It'll become the blessed hope is what it's referred to here. And, you know, I really don't hear about his return much anymore in churches. And I've been, we've been to a lot of different churches. When my wife and I moved uh, to Altoona, Pennsylvania, where we currently live, we went to a lot of churches. And I'll tell you what, I can't remember the last sermon I heard on the Lord's return. Unless it's a Calvary Chapel style of church where you're teaching verse by verse through the Bible. And you kind of have to talk about that once in a while. But do you realize all throughout the New Testament, his return is so present that the Christians lived as if Jesus could return at any moment. It was, it was one of the heartbeats to live a godly life. And if we strip away his return, if we're not thinking about Jesus returning, and we've, we become so comfortable in our American dream, we become so comfortable in our society that Jesus' return just seems like something in the distance, that it, it, it impacts our life very little. We've lost one of God's most powerful tools to change our life and transform our life. Because guess what? If I lived as though Jesus could return today, today, how would that impact the way that I live? How would that change my priorities in life? What would that do to those relationships that maybe need a little bit of work done? What phone calls would I make that I've been putting off if I believed with all my heart that Jesus could return today? How, what would I watch or what wouldn't I watch? Where would I go or where wouldn't I go? If Jesus could return at any moment. You know, I'm challenged by this text because sometimes in, even in my own Christian life, you know, I, I mean, I know he's coming. The signs are there, right? Just look at Israel, look at the Middle East. You know, this is the first time in human history we have the capability of destroying all of humanity with the weapons that are out there today. And we live as if we're in this bubble. Now, if you're in Iran and you're a Christian, you're in North Korea, Venezuela, China, and you're persecuted for your faith in Jesus, I promise you his return is very precious to your heart. And that is your blessed hope. You long for the day to see the Messiah come. 
and save and restore. But is Jesus' return near and dear to your heart? You see, grace challenges us in our present day behavior to long for his return. And we look for the blessed hope. Notice that it says looking for the blessed hope. That word looking means constantly expecting. In other words, it's not just like a one-time thing. You're constantly looking for his return every single day. Every single morning you wake and you say, Lord, perhaps today, maybe today's the day that you'll come back. Does it impact your decisions? Peter said the end of all things is at hand. And therefore, that fact should motivate us to live a godly life in Christ. In verse 13, we have one of the clearest references in Scripture regarding the deity of Jesus Christ as well. Notice that it refers to him and his appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard someone say that the Scripture does not teach that Jesus is God? Or that he never claimed to be God? Do you ever hear people make that statement? Or that he's not God? And... This particular text, it's, it's so clear, and there is compelling evidence that it's been translated properly. Now, if you read the King James Bible, I'm not against the King James at all. Uh, I, I love it. I think it's beautiful. But the King James got this verse wrong because the King James actually separates the two. It separates the, the great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, as if they're two different people. And there are scholars who will make that claim that it's not referring to the same person. The great God's the Father, they would say, and the Savior, Jesus Christ, is the Son, but they want to try to make it talk about two different people. Number one, where in the Bible does it talk about the appearing of the Father? It doesn't. It talks about the appearing of the Son. And I just want to point out a couple. If, if we have any people who enjoy this type of thing, you maybe like apologetics, um, I think it's good for our faith. There's a couple things that Greek scholar Edward Munz points out about this text and the deity of Jesus Christ. Number one, he points out the fact that based on the method of interpretation calling the Granville Sharp Rule, the Greek text joins God and Savior as referring both to Jesus Christ. So the Granville Sharp Rule, I'm not going to get into it, but it's basically a way that we look at verbs and nouns and different things in Scripture. And what this rule does is it shows us that it's referring to the same person. Uh, number two, he points out that if Paul was speaking of two different persons here, it would have been easy for him to say so with, uh, unambiguously. An example, he could have said the great God and Jesus Christ our Savior, but he doesn't. He could have said our great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, but he doesn't. Instead, he chooses a form that most naturally reads as one person. To say it another way, if Paul did not believe that Jesus was God, it seems highly unlikely that he would have been so sloppy making such a significant theological statement. But if Paul did believe that Jesus was God, then it is no surprise to read this. So he made it clear, Jesus is God. Number three, he notes that the phrase God and Savior was a set phrase in Hellenistic language. Usually it referred to emperor worship. They would call the emperor God and Savior, and it always referred to one person. And it always refers to one person in this culture when it's used. And again, it's referring to Jesus Christ. And finally, the early church fathers uh, were nearly unanimous in seeing God and Savior as referring to Jesus. And so why do I say all that? I say that to say that this text gives us beautiful evidence of who Jesus Christ is. He's God in the flesh. 
fully God, fully man, coming back. Does his deity rise or fall on this text? No, it's all throughout the scriptures of who Jesus is. When he made those I am statements in John's gospel, the Jewish people knew what he was saying because they wanted to kill him after he said it. When he said, I and the Father are one, again, they, they understood what he was saying. They, wanted to, they claimed that he was blaspheming, making himself one with God. So the, his deity doesn't rise or fall in one text, but I just want to, you to see that what Scripture clearly teaches is that he's fully God and fully man. And you know what? That's really important because if he isn't, then we're without hope. Because we needed someone to bridge the gap between God and man. We, we can't do it in our, on our own. And only he could be the mediator between us and, and the Lord. And so we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. This is what he's doing in our life. This is why the beginning of chapter 2 told us to be different. Older men, I want you to be this way. Younger men, this way. Older women, this way. Younger women, this way. Because Jesus is purifying his church and preparing us for himself. In closing, I want to point you, though, to one last thing in verse 12. Notice in verse 12, at the end of it, we see Paul reminds us of our present situation. Notice he says here he wants us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You see, we live as Christians in a very weird time because we're between God's grace and his glory. We're between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And he reminds us that the means of living an obedient life here and now is to keep our eyes on Jesus, right? He's reminding us of the work of the cross, looking back at what he's done for us. He's causing us to look forward to his return and we're keeping our eyes on Jesus. And so when you keep your eyes on Jesus, you will become like him. You will grow to know him and long for him. And we look forward to seeing him. And listen, we live in a chaotic world, don't we? When you go to work every week, you hear people using Jesus Christ as a curse word. Some people don't even know who he is. They just think he's a curse word to use. You see people murdering one another. You see people ODing. You see people, I mean, forget about it. This world's a mess. Wars, rumors of wars everywhere. You turn on the news, it's chaos. You see families are a disaster in our society. It's almost like you breathe in in this world, just, just junk. Turn on the TV, listen to music. And as a Christian, we're called to be salt. We're called to be light. We're called to be different in the world, but not of the world. And how do we do that? We do that by God's grace. And it's his grace that transforms us inward and then outward, changing our behavior so that we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we can, as it says in verse 10, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Because our hearts have been captivated by one who's so much greater than what this world has to offer. It's like when you fall in love with someone. When you fall in love with someone, what happens to all the other people? All the other people vying for your attention. Don't they just kind of fade away in the background? And you have this one person who just steals the show. 
and life begins revolving around this one person. Now, with our fallen humanity, that can, can become dangerous, right? We can become blind and make poor choices, but when that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're looking at what he's done for you on that cross, and you're looking forward to his return and the grace that God is pouring into your heart, that has a wonderful transforming effect on your life. And it's not you trying harder to be a good Christian. It's Christ and his power in you bringing about resurrected life. And verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Older men, I encourage you, go back to chapter 2. And in light of the grace of God, walk that out. Older women, go back to chapter 2. By the grace of God, younger men, younger women, employees, employers, allow the word of God to transform your hearts and your lives and rely solely on his grace and God will, God will do things in your life you never thought possible and he'll make you a witness for his son and he'll conform you to his son in the same process. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that your word truly does sanctify our life, Lord. And we thank you that it's your grace that changes us, Father. It's not us trying harder. It's not us making new resolutions, Lord. It's not us striving to turn away from things that destroy, Lord. You change us, Lord, from the inside. And you make us men and women after your heart, Lord. Would you just give us that revelation this morning, Lord? Would you reveal your son to us? and the grace that you've given to us, Lord, through him, the glory that awaits us as he returns, Lord. Would you move our hearts, Father, in a direction towards you, that we would see your power in our life, Lord, that our life would be different, it would be changed, Lord, so that you receive all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.